uh, verses 5 through 7, um, particularly uh, the end of 6 and beginning of 7 this week. But I'll go ahead and kind of uh, read the entire um, surrounding passage to give us a a running start into it. So starting in verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he, is, that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, we thank you for um, this time. We thank you for this Lenten season that we were in. Um, we thank you, uh, as, as we have these weeks that lead up to, um, the celebration of the resurrection of your son, that, um, God, we take a time specially to focus in on, um, the things that are going on in our hearts and lives, God, that we would be self-reflective in these weeks, um, that you would, um, zoom in our attentions, um, to issues of sanctification, um, drawing us closer to you in prayer, in study of the word, in fasting. Um, God, as we're going to talk about today in serving those um, around us, that in all these things, um, you prepare our hearts for, for the Easter um, resurrection season. God, we thank you um, this day for churches all around Blunt County. We thank you for every church um, in this community uh, that um, speaks your truth, um, God, that preaches your gospel um, and delves into your word uh, on a weekly basis. God, we pray for the blessing of those ministries and churches. Um, we ask that you would continue to grow them and to draw people um, to those places, that people would, through um, those congregations and through the very various ministries that they represent, um, that you would call people out of their sin and into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would do the same for our church, um, that you would continue to um, open our eyes to those who are around us, those who are in our um, workplaces and in our families, in our communities, in, in the places that we frequent, um, and open our eyes to um, those who need to know Jesus Christ, um, those who are disconnected um, from him, uh, um, those who are disconnected from his church, God, those who have never heard the name of Jesus or have never believed on the name of Jesus. God, help us to be witnesses in those places, to see the need um, and to uh, minister and to share the good news of Jesus. Jesus Christ with those around us. God, as we come into this time, we ask that um, that you would use um, 
the things that I say to be um, a gospel proclamation, God, that if there is anything that I say that is contrary to your word, I, I pray that you would um, make us forget it, that you would let it fall uh, on deaf ears. Um, but God, everything um, that that I talk about that is in accordance with your word, God, I pray that you would um, attach it to our hearts and attach it to our thoughts, attach it to um, our understanding, that you would let it set up and take root um, and grow and produce um, a crop um, of virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Uh, we ask that you would do these things in the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so um, so I'm going to kind of just jump in here. Um, in terms of in terms of introduction, a lot of the things that we've talked about would be the same thing since we're in the same passage. We won't rehash some of those things. Um, this week, we're looking at that next word that comes in this progression of sanctification in Second um, Peter chapter one, verses five and seven, and that is this term godliness. Um, now, I think the case is this: is that we use the word godliness in a very general way, typically, right? We use it being synonymous with words like holiness or righteousness or pious, at least in a positive sense of that word, or virtuous, or saying something about being biblically consistent in terms of our moral character, right? We basically use those terms interchangeably. But as we've talked about before, um, in this passage, uh, there, there must be more. To that word godliness than just it being a generic um, word for holiness. And the reason why that is, that's got to be the case is if not, this passage becomes very redundant, right? It's told us to grow in virtue and knowledge and self control and perseverance, and now it says grow in godliness. But if all godliness is, is basically a, a, uh, a synonym for all those other things combined, then basically we wouldn't really be saying anything new, right? We'd be saying grow in godliness. And then going, growing godliness again, right? And so the, the, the word has to be being used in some sort of specific context, right? Paul and the Holy Spirit is using godliness, um, to, to zoom in on an idea that is, that is, while connected to all those other things, holiness and righteousness, um, it is distinct in some ways from those concepts too. And so what I want to do to start out with is just sort of like, um, throw out some, some, some general things that we notice about that term godliness as we see it in the New Testament. All right. Um, just some things that we kind of would, if in, in, a, in, a, in a typical reading of the scriptures, that we might glean about holiness as we read. And so here's, here's the first thing that you notice about godliness. And it may be surprising to a lot of people. Godliness is not a word that is used very often in the New Testament, which seems sort of strange, right? Like you would think godliness would just be a word that was, was very common. It's actually not. It's only found in four books in the New Testament. Three of those are the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. And then the other book where it's found is in Second um, Peter, which we've been studying. And so, uh, so again, that word, um, it's interesting that we don't see that word probably as much as we might think we would see it. Um, it's a little more obscure a concept in some ways. And the very fact that it is so frequently mentioned in the context of these letters that are largely about pastoral training and training in the ministry, training in the, in the living out of our faith in the world, I think is significant. 
Okay, and so that's the first kind of idea. Two, um, I think um, that oftentimes people think of godliness as something that is unattainable. Right. So if you were to hear somebody say something like, you know, that person is a very godly person, like you wouldn't just use that phrase about anybody. Um, it is typically the kind of thing that we say about people that we hold in very high esteem in terms of the faith. And so um, I think there's a feeling that we have where we might say, man, I don't I don't feel like godliness, like being um, like God in 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 certain ways is something that I could ever actually get to. It's certainly not something that I would say of myself. And yet, at the same time, we know that godliness is attainable. In fact, this passage that we've read points to that very fact up up just above the section that we're reading in, in chapter one. What does he say? He says um, that God has given us all. All things that pertain to life and godliness. All right. So what that means is you have everything you need as a follower of Jesus Christ, as someone who has professed faith in Jesus Christ, somebody who's been changed by the spirit, who's been dwelt by the spirit. You have everything you need in the spirit to be godly. Okay, And so it's not something that is outside of the normal Christian experience. It's not something that is unattainable. Godliness is a possibility. In fact, it's an expectation. You are expected to be godly because God has given you what you need to be godly. All right. Third, first, Timothy. Um, chapter two makes the connection in this case in in the in, in the lives of women. It's talking about the, the spiritual lives of women and it makes a connection between godliness and good works. All right. And so it's it's talking about women living out their phase and it says, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Okay, so what is that saying? It's saying that if you claim to be godly, that should look like you doing good works. All right. And and I would argue that's not just for women, even though he's zooming in on, on women in that passage. It's certainly for men, too. So there's a connection there between godliness and good works in specific. Okay. Four. So from this passage and others, we see that godliness is something that must come from discipline. All right. So we have said all along is that what we're talking about in this whole series is the idea of making every effort to pursue these things in our lives. And so we're not saying that godliness is something that you just kind of have to sit and wait and see if God does it in you, that we are called to pursue godliness and to work towards godliness. Yes, in the power of the gospel. Yes, in uh, through the power of the spirit. Um, yes, faithfully relying on God. But we are ca- called to exert um, grace filled effort in pursuit of godliness. Godliness can lead to benefit. For us, okay, it can be something that actually benefits us, and probably more than just in a spiritual context, which would be obvious, right? Um, the, the scriptures say that when godliness is accompanied with contentment, that it is for great gain in our lives. It is something that brings great gain into our lives. In fact, it even says that there are some people out there, false teachers, who have treated godliness as if it is a means for temporal gains, right? And the only reason why they could do that is because in doing those things, there's, there, there's some sort of benefit for us in, in, in life. And so, um, so essentially what that is getting the idea of is that you can have a 
You can have a mock godliness, right? You can have a counterfeit godliness that still seems to have some beneficial effects out in the world, and yet it might not be an actual, um, it, it might not be actually connected to God. Um, a, a sixth thing. The scriptures connect the gospel and the mission of Jesus himself to the concept of godliness. So in 1 Timothy 3, it says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? Well, then he tells us. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Right. So he says, what is the mystery of godliness that has been revealed? Essentially, it is the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That it is him coming to earth and doing the things that he did and then, and then, and then returning to heaven, that that is um, connected to the concept of godliness. And so it, it's, it's not only, only possible to be godly because of what Jesus has done, but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is actually a perfect picture of what godliness is. And so kind of to summarize all those things, I'd say this. So one, godliness is related to holiness, but it's distinct from holiness. And so when we talked about holiness earlier in this series, we said holiness is about that internal working of God. It is God conforming your moral character to the character of Christ. Okay? And so it is, godliness is connected to that. Holiness is part of that, but it's also distinct from that. It seems to be especially significant to the cause of Christian ministry and leadership. All right, so godliness is particularly um, significant in those things. It is connected to good works, right? It is connected to um, good works that are expected to be the fruit of that godliness. And then again, like we said, it can be counterfeited in some ways. And so we mentioned it weeks ago, but but holiness is that interchange. And then godliness is about being set apart in terms of our outward actions. All right. And that's the way we're going to distinguish between the two. Holiness is is in. And again, the scriptures often kind of meld the terms, right? Because they should be melded, right? These things should be connected. But if, if we're trying to distinguish between the two terms, because there's some places that say grow in holiness and godliness, right? So there's got to be some kind of distinction. The distinction is holiness is what God is doing in your internal character. And godliness is about your outward action. You're about um, living in terms of mission towards the world. So um, if godliness, therefore, is about mission, um, the idea is that godliness, and it makes sense if we're talking about the life of Jesus, godliness is about the progress of the gospel in the world through the obedience of God's people that looks like sacrificial servanthood. All right. So it looks like us doing essentially what Jesus did. Jesus um, came to earth. He, he, he lived a life of service and sacrifice for people um, in obedience to God. We do the same thing, right? That is how we live out our faiths in terms of godliness. Godliness is always about mission. Holiness is about mission, too, in a lot of ways, but holiness on its own is incomplete, right? That's why over the centuries, and we've kind of touched on this before, over the centuries, holiness um, 
the church has always recognized that there is a dangerous tendency in terms of holiness to zoom in on our, ourselves too much, to basically become ascetics, right? To basically say, I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus, and the way I'm going to do that is by getting super solid and hardcore in terms of my life and character and spiritual disciplines and keeping the world at arm's length. All right. And so you've seen this throughout the history of the church. And again, we've touched on a couple of these themes, but we'll do a real quick kind of history lesson. And, and, and I'm painting with pretty, pretty broad strokes here, but, but, but just kind of see the connection here. So as Christianity began in those first several centuries of the church, right, the, the 100s and, and the 200s and, and up to um, the 300s, in general, Christianity was a marginalized community. Right. Um, it was a persecuted community in lots of contexts. Now, not everywhere and not equally everywhere. Right. But in terms of its influence, in terms of who um, were followers of Jesus Christ and the kind of power that they had, it was a marginalized and persecuted community. And then in the year 313, as Christianity had started to kind of uh, gain steam in, in the Greco-Roman world, in the year 313, there was a, an emperor named Constantine. And he gave this thing called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan basically um, eliminated um, religious intolerance, um, or at least officially from, from the state, right? It said, from now on, no religion is going to be um, favored necessarily. Like, you can believe whatever you want to. Previous to that, Christians had literally been executed and, and, and tortured and things like that because they would not submit to Caesar. They would not worship an image of Caesar or things like that. The Edict of Milan functioned officially put an end to that, all right? And then 10 years later, another step was taken, and not only was there religious toleration, but Christianity was actually made the official religion of the Roman Empire in, in around 323, all right? Now, what's interesting is this. Roughly at the same time, the early monastic traditions start popping up. All right. All of a sudden you find a focus on living a monastic life that we had not seen for the first two or three hundred years of the church. And all of a sudden this starts taking place around the same time. Um, Christians start abandoning society and and moving out into the desert, especially northern Africa, and practicing an ascetic kind of monasticism. Okay, And then and then pretty soon after that, it's not just solely ascetic. There are communities of these guys or whatever, but even then, they're probably living out in the middle of nowhere, um, just living in small communities of, of monks or nuns. So, why do these things coincide? Right? Well, it, it's probably obvious, because anyone who reads the scriptures sees that the Christian life is supposed to be about sacrifice. Right? It's supposed to be about service. It's supposed to be about costing us something. All right. In the first 300 years of, of the church, that was your daily life, right? If you professed faith in Jesus Christ and became a follower of Jesus Christ, it was going to cost you something. It was going to cost you social capital. It was going to cost you potential persecution. It was going to cost you potential ostracization. That's not a word. I don't know. But you were going to potentially be ostracized from your community, right? That was what was going to happen. And so there was an, there was an automatic 
sacrifice that took place. The same way it is in much of the world today, right? If you, if you become a Christian in India, if you become a Christian in a Muslim country, there are going to be immediate real-time consequences for that, right? Um, the same thing was true in the early church, except when Christianity becomes the, the, the primary religion of, of the Roman Empire, all of a sudden that's not the case anymore. All of a sudden, not only does it not cost you something, it might actually be beneficial for you to become a Christian, right? You might actually get into aspects of society and be accepted in ways that you would not be if you continued in your, in your pagan belief or whatever. And so suddenly, there is not only no cost, but it's even advantageous to be a Christian. And so many people in the church realize we got a problem here. Because if Christianity is supposed to be about service, if it's supposed to be about sacrifice, if it's supposed to cost us something, it doesn't anymore. Like it's only beneficial to us. And of course what that lends itself to is then people who aren't really believers start professing faith in Jesus, right? Because they go, man, this will get me into the right circles if I'm a follower of Jesus. We know that's the case in, say, the American South 50 years ago, right? There were lots of people who were members of churches. Why? Because it was good for business or because you didn't want to be an outsider in your community. You would be seen as an outsider if you weren't if you didn't belong to a certain church. And so everybody um, was part of a church, right? Um, because it, it was it was socially advantageous. Um, again, not to say that there weren't people who were actually believers, but certainly there were some people in those churches that weren't actually believers. They were only doing it for social reasons. So these guys start doing this, and these people start realizing, man, my faith's got to cost me something. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to self-impose a cost on myself, right? I'm going to move out to the desert, and I'm going to live in a hole, and I'm going to eat bugs, right, for the rest of my life. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to fast, and I'm going to cut myself off from all the lusts and the worldly um, comforts that are around me, and I'm going to live this dedicated kind of life, right? Or I'm going to move to a monastery, and in that monastery, I'm going to treat my body harshly through extreme fasting and, and deprivation and these difficult kind of things, right? Um, they looked at their prosperous, safe Christianity, and so they fled from the world and turned inward and isolated themselves. All right? That's what happened. Sound like anybody you know? Right. I think in many circles that could define the American church like we look like the two extremes in many cases. We look like the people who joined Christianity because it was culturally advantageous and in other corners or other sectors. We look like the people who picked up shop, moved to the holler and circled the wagons and waited on the apocalypse. Right. We we look like those two kinds of people. So. As this all kind of stuff starts taking place, there are some communities that do something different. And we talked about some of those back on St. Patrick's Day when we were talking about knowledge. Um, not all monastic communities lived that way. Not all secluded themselves from the world. So in 400, so about 100 years after Christianity is legitimized, the Western Roman Empire starts to collapse. Right. Um, they had a super long winter, sort of a mini ice age. Um, the, the Rhine and the Danube rivers froze 
And now that there was this natural bridge, barbarians from central northern Europe and Russia and places like that just start coming across these frozen rivers because it was awful to live in, you know, Norway during an ice age. And they're like, man, we're going to go to the south of France. That's where we need to be. And so they would move to those places. And as they did, they pillaged and burned and conquered. And they weren't believers. They weren't Christians. And so they basically supplanted the Christian culture that had grown up over the first 400 years of the church. Um, there was no Christianity left in rural context. There was still Christianity in big cities sometimes, which is sort of the opposite of the way that we usually think, right? Cities are where Christianity has a hard time. Country is where it's safe. It was the opposite in the Roman world. The word pagan means rural. Okay, that's basically what it means. And so they, in the cities, you could still be a Christian in some ways. But out in the country, man, it got weird real quick because there were all these pagans who had moved in from other places, Right. As the, as the, as the Western civilization and Christianity collapse, right, there are these little enclaves of, of monks, monasteries. The, 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 the Celts, um, the descendants of Patrick, um, in Ireland and Scotland, right? Um, the Benedictines, um, who were basically in sort of Central Europe and stuff like that. These communities had become um, centers of knowledge, um, centers of, of holding on to the, to the, to the literature and the scriptures and, and even the, the larger things of Western civilization. But also, they had become these places where Christianity was remembered and kept intact. Right? As the rest of the world kind of got diluted and even a lot of Christianity got diluted, it didn't in these monasteries because they had pulled out and secluded themselves. But the difference is this. They didn't see their seclusion as something to end with. Right? They didn't say, cool, we're secluded. We should just stay here in our little holy huddle and hang out and be safe. No, instead, what they realized is that they couldn't just sit on their knowledge. They began to take that knowledge back out into the world. They started to re-evangelize all of Western Europe. And so the, 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 the Celts, the Irish, and the Scottish, they start evangelizing England and then the northern coast of Europe. The Benedictines start moving out. They start placing monasteries and, and evangelizing in new places, um, going into these all these different um, areas. And they basically reseed, um, not recede, not fall back, but they replant Christianity in um, Western Europe. Um, we owe our Christian heritage to those groups, right? If you're anything other than an Italian Catholic, um, you owe your Christianity to the Benedictines and the Celts um, in, in to, large, to a large extent. Um, the fact that we have not forgotten, uh, forgotten the faith and, and it has been supplanted by other things. All that to say, those communities were marked not only by a deep and dedicated spiritual formation and personal holiness, but they were also dedicated to mission. They were dedicated to the practice of sending people out into the world to tell other people about um, the gospel. I've shared with you that the awesome, it's a really cool Celtic principle. They had three kinds of martyrdom in the Celtic world, three concepts of martyrdom. There's the green martyrdom, which was basically a martyrdom of study. Um, it meant you went to a hill somewhere and you and you spent the rest of your life copying and reading and studying and, and writing and things like that. You had the red martyrdom, which meant it was execution, right? You went somewhere where it cost you um, your death. Um, and then there was the white martyrdom. And the white martyrdom was the idea of getting in a boat and setting sail towards the white sky, knowing that you would never come home. Um, but not out into the middle of the sea 
to a foreign people. It's essentially the concept of cross-cultural missions is what we would call it, right? It was the idea of saying, I'm leaving home and I'm taking the gospel to a people who haven't heard it and I'll never come home again. Because once I get to that place, they're either going to kill me or I'm going to set up shop and become one of them and I'm going to indigenize the faith among these people. I'm never coming home. And so they have these ideas of, of taking the gospel to the world, taking the gospel to other cultures. Or when they're staying home, you know what they're doing? Even when they stay home, they're doing things like ministering to the least of these. So they're starting poorhouses and orphanages and hospitals and education centers, right? They're doing things as missionary kind of organizations, even in the places where they, they are at, all right? Because they're not hoarding their faith. They're finding ways to serve and to sacrifice for the people around them. It's holiness wedded with godliness, right? It is character wedded with sacrificial service. That's what we're seeing. And so, um, again, here's something that we should be honest about in our own lives. This is what God is calling us to, and we should be honest that many of us are not there, right? We have not come to a point in our faith where um, we are living our lives in a servant-hearted and sacrificial way to the world, right? For some of us, we're very new to even the holiness side of it, right? Actually taking our faith seriously to the point where we are exploring it and learning about it and growing in terms of character and knowledge and virtue and self-control and perseverance, right? We've just begun that process. But the next step... And, and again, these things don't necessarily happen sequentially and they don't happen all at, at an even pace. But the next step is this idea of saying it's important that we get our own hearts in, in the right place. But then that needs to lead to something. It has to have some kind of action and progress that goes out into the world. Godliness, missional living, which is sort of a buzz term and it's probably not super helpful because it means so many things, but missionary living, sacrificial servant, servanthood to your community should be our goal. Right? If you kind of look at your life and you go, man, I'm a really good person and I love Jesus and I just kind of do my thing in my area, um, that's not the, that's not the, the end of your faith, right? The next piece, the next forward progression is recognizing godliness, um, pursuing godliness, finding a servant-hearted missionary um, heart um, that is is imitating the heart of God to the world. Because that's exactly what we see, like we said a minute ago, with Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is willing to step down out of the glories of heaven. He's willing to come to earth and humble himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He's willing to take on flesh. He's willing to take on frailty. He's willing to become a servant, not to the worthy, not to the good, right? Because there are no worthy people. There are no good people. He comes instead to minister to the weak, to minister to the rebellious, those people who are not virtuous and not wise and not self-controlled and who are not persevering, right? He came to sacrifice his life for their lives. And that's what godliness is calling us to do. The life of Christ, the gospel itself, that missionary, missional kind of nature, that's what it means to be godly. That's what it means to be devoted to God and imitate the missionary endeavor that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there are any number of ways that that might play itself out, right? That might look different in every single one of our lives. 
um, both here in, in our community and abroad. If you were to, to, to become a cross-cultural missionary or something and go to a different place, it would look different ways. Um, there may be, in fact, I think for sure there will be all kinds of different ways that God draws our attention to. Um, God will draw our attention to different things, different things that we will care about, right? Some people will, will have a heart for the homeless. And, and all of a sudden their focus and their attention and the, and the need there, they'll be drawn to the homeless. Other people might um, be drawn to helping uh, in education and job training for underprivileged communities or something like that. Um, somebody might be interested and drawn to mentoring at-risk kids in, in some place. Um, sometimes people are, oftentimes in the church, they're drawn to work with children who have um, serious diseases or, or um, disabilities or something like that. Um, there are people who have felt a calling to minister to um, people who are coming out of um, sex trade industry and things like that, right? All these different things. It could take th- the form of, of any number of different things, and that is good and that is right. God matches our gifting and our desires and our inclinations and our interests and our skills, and he takes those things and the things that we care about, and he melds them together and says, I want you to go out and do something. I want you to go be godly. Okay, I want you to go out and serve and sacrifice other people in this context that I have tweaked your heart to. Okay, but even though saying that it could take any kind of uh, lots of different forms, it is my prayer that as a church, we would pay special attention to three different kinds of people that we would pay special attention to three different communities of people um, that I believe we see the scriptures paying special attention to. And that is, again, if you, if you read through the Bible, you notice it talking about widows, orphans, and sojourners a lot. All right? It zooms in on those three classes of people, those three categorizations of people all over the place. Why? Probably because those three people, three kinds of people are uniquely vulnerable, right? They're people who often have little help and possibly even less hope because they are marginalized in the places that they live and in their communities. Okay. And so I could go through, I mean, literally, if you look up, if you do a, if you do a Bible, you know, software search for orphan, Widow, and then the different words that are used for sojourner, alien, um, foreigner, sojourner, um, th- those kind of words, hundreds of passages all right, that we see in the scriptures. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. He who executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien um, uh, by giving him food will be blessed. You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan. You shall not take a widow's garment as a pledge. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it, but you shall be, leave it for the alien, the orphan, or the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you and in all bless you in all the works of your hands. Cursed is he who distorts justice for the orphan, the widow, and the alien, and all the people. People shall say amen. If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, you will be blessed. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of the oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do, invite, do violence to the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in that place. 
Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside from the alien and do not fear me. Okay, that's just a sampling of verses from the Old Testament. And notice a couple of crazy things in there. It puts people who turn away from the plight of the foreigner in the same category as sorcerers and adulterers, okay? I would say the case is that every single person in this room has turned away from the plight of the foreigner, right? We have looked at situations and we've gone, man, I know that's a difficult situation, but it's not my problem and I'm not going to have anything to do with it, right? We have turned away from those things. And at least in an Old Testament context, the scriptures are saying you're in the same category as sorcerers and adulterers. You're in the same category as people who shed innocent blood, um, because you, but you, because you have not served uh, these people. James one twenty seven. Religion that our God, uh, the God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Right? What do you see? Holiness, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Godliness, serving the the the, the needy and and the vulnerable and the less fortunate. In this context, in terms of of the the orphan and the widow, think about the craziness of that statement. Jesus um, or the Holy Spirit through James just equated true spirituality to the way you treat orphans and widows. Right? We would, I think, again, not do that. We would say, what makes you a really true Christian? What makes you a hardcore Christian? What makes you a faithful Christian? The first thing that came to our mind would not be the way I treat orphans and widows. It probably wouldn't for probably any of us. And yet that's literally what it says in James. Right? This is what true religion looks like. Caring for the orphan and widow and keeping yourself unstained by the world. Holiness, godliness. Here's the thought and the dilemma is that there are any number of ways in which churches, and you often see this, churches can begin to do many good things. And they can be have tons of good things that they are doing. Um, but they can have so many different things that they are doing that maybe they're not doing any of them well, um, or they've got resources spread in so many different ways, and, and so things um, just don't work very well. There's not a lot of effect. There's not a lot of fruit from those things. Um, I'm not encouraging anybody to not do anything good, right? Uh, just like I said, if there's a ministry, if there's a way of service that you already have a heart for, then I'm not saying turn away from that. But what I am saying is that maybe because we see the word of God so uniquely focused on those three categories of people, maybe it would be incumbent upon us as a church to be focused on those three groups of people as well. All right. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know what that necessarily looks like. Um, it, it, I can imagine all kinds of things. As far as orphans, it could be engaging with adoption and foster care in various ways, like we are um, hoping to, to do more and more. Um, it might look like working with children who are underprivileged or in single-parent homes or in at-risk situa- situa- situations. Um, it might mean connecting with more traditional kind of orphanages or children's homes or places like Where's Valley Ranch that's here close. Um, it could look like lots of things. Um, Ministering to widows, right? Women who are left alone after the death of their spouse are often in a uniquely vulnerable position, right? Um, 
there are lots of people who don't have families, right? They don't have children who are, who are around to help and to guide and to, I mean, I know my mom, uh, she's not a widow, but she can't even open jars anymore, right? Like she just got to buy boxed food, um, I guess, because she couldn't open a jar if there wasn't somebody who you could hand the jar to. Or, and, and I mean, it's simple things like that you don't even think of, right? Widowed women are in uniquely vulnerable positions oftentimes, and, and, and God cares about that, and the Word cares about that. Sojourners, aliens, foreigners, right? All of those words are words that we would probably say are not super PC or whatever, but internationals, okay? Um, to be honest, we live in a pretty monochromatic kind of county, okay? Um, 2010 um, statistics, census statistics. Blunt County is 93% white. 3% black, 3% Latino, and 1% Asian, okay? We're a pretty, uh, uh, there's not a lot of international diversity in Blount County, but there is some, right? Um, we're not a hotbed of immigration or anything, uh, but there are nevertheless opportunities um, for um, people to serve um, the immigrant com- community, possibly, hopefully, extending to uh, maybe even Knoxville in some places, and specifically, and at least in my heart, extending to college campuses, right? We have an amazing opportunity that, that the people, the educated influencers of the world want to come to America to get an education so that they can potentially go back to their countries. And if we can win those people for Christ while they're here, um, we will be taking great steps towards the missionary endeavor of taking the, the gospel to the nations, right? This is what I pray for the church. This is what we've been praying for the church in our, in our monthly prayer meeting, at least part of what we've been praying. Um, for us as Christians to have a heart uniquely for those three groups of people. For orphans, for widows, for sojourners. If your, your heart is drawn in some other place, great. But I would like to see us as a church and as a concerted effort um, find ways, prayerfully seek out ways to grow in terms of our ministry to those three people, to those three groups of people. And so, again, as the church continues to grow, I pray that God would stir our hearts in those things. Um, that, that as God grows us in terms of our character and grows us in terms of our holiness and our Christ-likeness on the inside, that he would then, in turn, grow us more in our Christ-likeness on the outside as we go and serve these different communities. Holiness wedded to godliness, right? Or even holiness working towards godliness. And, and as we'll see in the last two weeks, both Palm Sunday and, and Easter Sunday, um, I think brotherly kindness and I think love are outworkings of that godliness, right? It is, it is the culmination of these other things that we have seen um, playing out in, in our growth and our sanctification. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and I, and I would ask you to just pray exactly that right now. Just pray that specific thing. Say, God... Um, open my heart, um, open my willingness, open my eyes, open my, um, uh, uh, the opportunities or whatever to see the needs in these places. Maybe you're somebody who could come alongside and, and, and work with somebody. Maybe you're somebody who could do the groundwork to get something like this started, um, in our church or in our community. Um, just ask God to start working. Um, it probably won't happen in, in a moment, and it probably won't happen over a couple of days and weeks. But ask God to continue to start working in our hearts and showing us these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father God, you are the great missionary. Um, You have uh, sent your own son into the world um, to live a life of service and sacrifice on behalf of a people that you love. Um, not on behalf of a people who, um, in most cases, welcomed you, not on behalf of a people who were already awaiting you, uh, but got you, um, because of your great love, um, stepped into the mess of our world um, to bring blessing and salvation and goodness, um, God, to unite us with yourself and bring us into your family. God, give us that Christ-like missionary heart, um, a heart that um, not only grows internally, um, not only is being conformed to the image of Jesus in our minds and hearts and characters, but, God, a, a faith that is being conformed to the image of Jesus in terms of love and sacrifice and missionary service to the world. God, open our eyes as a church to how we can grow in these things. God, give us hands to serve, mouths to speak the good news of the gospel, and lives um, to lay down for your cause. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.